0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts, tracking down the threats and vulnerabilities, solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us.
1: We started seeing this attack showing up in the real world, and the patterns Of the attack were interesting enough to to start to dig into it more and try and figure out what what exactly we were looking at.
0: That's Chad Seaman. He's a team lead with Akamai's CERT. The research we're discussing today is titled CVE-2022-26143 TP-240 Phone Home Reflection Amplification DDoS Attack Vector. So, at the core of what we're talking about today is a reflection amplification distributed denial of service attack, a DDoS attack. Uh, for those who may not be all that familiar with it, can you give us a, a little brief overview of exactly how a reflection amplification attack works?
1: Yeah. Um, so DDoS, in general, uh, I often describe it as as kind of like the Christmas time rush. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, if you if you go to a store around Christmas time. Um, they may have 20 different, uh, lanes open for you to check out. And most likely all of those will be open and there will probably be a short line at all of them. Now, if you walk in on a random Tuesday in the middle of June, that may not be the case. There may only be one or two registers open. There may not even be any humans standing there scanning products. It may just be the self checkout lines, right? Uh, and those lines will be manageable, a DDoS attack would basically be like a flash mob running into a Walmart the size of a Christmas shopping crowd and, and then filling up all the queues without the the company having time to bring on enough staff and enough hands to support that, that level of traffic in the physical world. A DDoS is that in a virtual format, right? A reflection attack is slightly different, um, only in that the attacker pretends to be the victim, uh, and then they go out and essentially simulate a request as the victim, which initiates a response from the reflector. Uh, this would be kind of like uh, I go out and I put a, uh, that you're selling gas at, at 55 cents a gallon. And then I put your phone number on the internet uh, and your address. And all of a sudden people start showing up and calling you. And, and now you're just overwhelmed, um, even though you had no intention of selling gas or you may not even have gas. But the people calling you don't know that. They All they know is the information they were given, which is, hey, if I reach out to this person, they'll sell me gas at 55 cents a gallon. So I'm going to get on that and they're going to do it mm-hmm. at scale. Well, let's
0: dig into this particular uh, 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 effort here. What exactly were you all observing?
1: So these attacks started to show up and they, I mean, they weren't devastating attacks, but they were concerning. Um, it's always interesting when we see a new vector pop up. In the the landscape of DDoS, especially um, at the scale that several of the other researchers that participated in that paper, uh, and especially Akamai, it gets pretty boring, to be completely honest. You see a Mm. lot of the same stuff day in and day out. So when you do start to see a new pattern or a new something pop up on your radar, it's always interesting because it means that somebody's figured something out that you haven't yet Mm. discovered. And this was the case. In this case, you know, um, because of, of the the way that reflection attacks work, like I said, you have to go forward and pretend to be a victim and talk to a service. Part of that response that that reflector sends back to the real victim once once it routes across the internet is the source port of the service that is being abused. So when we start to see new source ports show up in this type of traffic and then within the traffic itself there there are patterns that can be identified as a side effect of the protocol that they could be abusing those are all interesting so you know if if somebody's running NTP on a weird port and we see these weird payloads coming in from a weird port or or known payloads rather coming in from a weird port it doesn't raise as many eyebrows but when you start to see a truly new protocol or truly new content or Pattern in the attack traffic also coming from ports that aren't traditionally leveraged for reflective DDoS, it kind of sounds the alarm like, oh man, okay, so there's something new out there. We don't exactly know how bad it hits, but we know that somebody is already abusing it because we're seeing it leveraged in attacks right now. And then the fact finding begins How is this abused? Why is this abused? Is it misconfiguration? are there a million of these things or are there a thousand of these things? And and then you have to start figuring that out in real time as you, as you start to learn the landscape and figure out how to best fight it.
0: And and this is an interesting one. I mean, walk us through the process of, of how you and the other folks on this team collaborated to, to find out exactly what was going on
1: here. You know, like i said, it started showing up, um, and looked fairly interesting from there, uh, Using real-world attacks, we were able to passively identify some sources that we could talk to because the the one thing that reflection attack can't hide is the true source of the reflection node. Um, if we see them talking to us on, I think it was port 10,074, uh, we could go back to port 10,074 from an attack source that participated in an attack and start to interrogate that uh, service running on that real machine that was leveraged in the attack. So from there... Uh, once we start to communicate with that, we we had no visibility right into what the command structure or how that that service functioned at all. We only had the payloads that were a result of somebody issuing a command to that endpoint. So you kind of go forward and start to poke and prod and figure out what is this thing, how do I talk to it? Thankfully for these, because of of them essentially being a, a test interface. For different capabilities of this device, if you sent anything, a question mark or a space, it would dump back a help screen. So right there, you Mm -hmm. basically had self-documentation of all the capabilities of the device. And then it became a a game of, well, which one of these are they abusing? It was pretty obvious which one was being abused based on the payloads that were coming back, uh, especially once you got the help screen. And then you start to kind of delve into that. And this was
0: a, a voiceover IP system that was being taken advantage of?
1: It was a software-slash-virtual-device-slash-physical-device that kind of predated uh, like a Microsoft Teams offering. So mm-hmm. it, it, the device itself could be purchased, and it was mostly purchased by small organizations that predated some, some of the platforms and stuff that we have now. That allowed them kind of a unified hub for file sharing, communications, chat, uh, and as part of that, there was some PBX integration uh, that allowed it to also engage in phone calls, uh, sending and receiving. I believe.
0: And that's what the the folks were able to take advantage of. That those were opened up to the public internet.
1: Yeah, and, and early on in, in the initial phases of this, when we kind of started to figure out what these things were, that was one of the big floating questions. Uh, you know, we found some of these devices were in very precarious networks. There were some that were linked to town's security or not security, uh, emergency response infrastructure. So mm. at that point, we kind of had to start a deeper fact finding because we weren't sure when somebody's abusing and, and I'm sure we'll go into more as we discuss the research, but the, these devices are single threaded. So we found that if, if one was being leveraged for an attack, any other attempts to communicate with that service failed, they would just hang until that attack was finished. And that, that led to the question of like, are people leveraging these to attack us successfully knocking down small Town's 911 infrastructure or emergency response mm-hmm. infrastructure. And and you know, those those are just some of the questions that pop up early on. And you you kind of those are questions you have to answer. And you need to answer them fast because it really it changes the overall threat, right? Yeah. So if if somebody's DDoSing me and it's hurting, that's not good. If somebody's DDoSing me and it's taking down Tacoma, Washington's 911 operations. That's a bigger problem. Uh, So (laughs) luckily we found out that that was not the case. Thank goodness. Ah,
0: I see. Now this uh, attack had a particularly high, uh, in your research, you say it was a record setting amplification ratio. What what was going on there?
1: Uh, Yeah. So typically in these reflection attacks, um, the attacker has to continually engage with the reflection component. So if, If I'm talking to, and this is in most cases, this is not a 100% across the board case, but in most cases, if I'm talking to server A and I'm reflecting traffic at victim Z, I need to send a packet to server A, which in turn triggers a response to victim Z. In this case, because of this being a test facility that was exposed and, and leveraged UDP, you could basically send a single request and that request would be processed by that test facility that would result in millions of packets uh, exiting the reflector node targeting the victim was
0: this the result of a, a configuration error or was this something you know overlooked in 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 how the system was designed this is this is an older system yes
1: yeah you know, when, when I first started testing it, um, so pretty early on, once we started to identify what the device was, reaching out to the manufacturer and, and trying to get the ball rolling on cleaning stuff up, um, like I said, there, was a, there is a virtual device component of this product. So we were able to actually get copies of the uh, OVA images and deploy virtual devices. And in my initial deployment of a virtual device, it wasn't vulnerable. Um, And what I found was that during the setup phase, it asks for a public interface and a private interface, and then it exposes certain things depending on that. Uh, And if uh, a user during the configuration phase had configured it to use the public IP address as both the public and private interfaces, then this misconfiguration uh, occurred. And basically uh, this, this testing card thought, well, this is my private internal interface so I can expose everything to it. Or so is my, my relatively hot take. I haven't really dug super deep into exactly how they get into this configurable configurable state. But in my early testing, that was something I discovered because I'm like, great, I've got this virtual device. Let me just start beating on it and it's not working. (laughs) So, yeah.
0: Yeah. That's fascinating. Well, where do we stand in terms of mitigation? Do, do uh, you know, standard DDoS defense tools work against this?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're engaged in um, you know upstream filtering and, and that kind of stuff to shed traffic, then you're going to be okay. The problem is it's a volumetric attack. So if it's possible to overwhelm your total bandwidth Anywhere in the upstream, you're going to be hurting regardless and, and your mitigation options are rather limited if they can push enough traffic. All the standard plays that you would use, like I've said, this is DDoS is fairly boring because you see the same thing over and over and over again. And a new reflection attack is interesting in that it's new, but it's not interesting in that it's all that unique. the The unique part about this one was the one attacker packet can result in. 220 billion amplification rate but at the end of the day if you were to still do source port uh, blocking of traffic and ACLs and and a lot of the standard playbooks you would be okay so long as you had enough bandwidth to support up to the up to your mitigation gear
0: now you've been in touch with the manufacturer of this device that's being taken advantage of here Uh, what's their response been
1: yeah, so it's funny. Um, we reached out to them, and at first, they were aware of the situation in the initial outreach, and then as we further uh, that discussion and went down that rabbit hole, it became clear that while they were had been made aware of the problem, they weren't fully aware of the severity of the problem. Uh, like I said, in the initial... Interaction with the device, if you send anything, even a single byte, you get back, I think, like 64 bytes or 128 bytes of response that is that help message. It's basically an error message followed by the help message, which, you know, yeah, that's, that's a reflection and amplification concern. But they weren't aware that using some of these other test interfaces that that service exposed really pushed it up to record-setting levels uh, of potential Um, Once that was more thoroughly explained, they were very proactive um, and uh, cooperative in going through the process of trying to identify their customers uh, and, Mm -hmm. and contact them. And it was tricky because they create the devices and it's on on top of that, it's a legacy device that I don't think they really sell anymore um, and Mm -hmm. don't, don't even support really, but they also have partnerships and those partnerships were also partially responsible for the selling configuration deployment and management of some of these devices. So it became kind of a game of whack-a-mole of trying to track down all the devices that we could identify on the network on the internet, sorry, which network that those devices lived on and then whose responsibility or what contractual Agreement they have on the backside of of their business that will ultimately get them in a position to be able to talk to the customer that has deployed that device. So it was a little bit tricky. Um, we had actually planned to go public with our findings earlier, but once we got involved with the uh, with with the contacts at Metel, basically we stretched out that timeline to provide them with more time and opportunity to clean up and try and get customers notified and patches put in place and firewalls spun up and, and everything that, that, you know, t- that comes with responsible disclosure.
0: It really does seem like you know, one of those tricky sorts of things, particularly when you're working with legacy equipment like this. I, I would imagine there are a lot of organizations who have things kind of running behind the scenes and they probably think to themselves, well, we're not sure how much this is being used, but we might as well leave it running because it's not really going to hurt anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because while we spotted the abuse because of it being leveraged for attack, that's also ultimately how Mitel was made aware of it initially was because companies have these things deployed and who knows how long they've been there or if they're still actively being used. But When somebody's abusing them for DDoS, it shows up in your outbound traffic. So suddenly you start seeing this device on your network and it's consuming massive amounts of outbound traffic. And that ultimately was what kind of raised up one of their customers ears that notified them of this problem. And then as as those attacks became more prevalent and we started seeing them show up across our borders, targeting our customers and such, it became a case of, oh, okay, well, you know, this is there and your customers are telling you it's abused. And you, you, they were proactively trying to get it fixed before we even reached out to them, but they, they just didn't understand the severity of it. So it was uh, definitely tricky.
0: One of the things that, that strikes me about this is the degree to which uh, the research and the mitigation, as you mentioned at the outset, was, it's just really a task force. There were a lot of, it's practically a who's who of research teams uh, who collaborated on this. Can you touch on the importance of that, of, of sharing this sort of information across the industry?
1: Yeah. Um, so within the industry, there are some smaller groups uh, that that kind of try to collaborate. And I've discussed this in some interviews in the past and such. Uh, about some of these working groups that have spun up. And it's because DDoS is, you know, it's it's not just an Akamai problem, right? Um, it's an everyone problem. And in some cases, it, it kind of also needs to be an everyone solution. We can sit back and and mitigate some of these attacks, all of these attacks up to this point without any problem or any concerns, but you might not be able to and somebody else might not be able to it, it really does become a bigger question of, well, we should probably fix this for all of us. Um, and that's that's kind of the driving force behind some of these collaborative efforts. So while we are direct competitors across a, a particular industry, we're also interested in making sure the internet stays up and functional and healthy. And you know, uh, no single group or bad actor can come around and, and start really Causing widespread pain for everyone.
0: Our thanks to Chad Seaman from Akamai for joining us. The research is titled TP240 Phone Home Reflection Amplification DDoS Attack Vector. We'll have a link in the show notes.